Welcome. This is yet another ABI podcast. This one dealing with the mortgage settlement agreement, uh, an event which in terms of newsworthiness is perhaps second only to Jeremy Lin. Uh, You can turn to any of your cable news providers to get discussions of the politics of this or go to blogs such as credit slips to see a policy debate. But I think what's most important to most of us who work in the bankruptcy area is to get some better understanding of the particulars of this landmark mortgage settlement agreement involving the five largest servicing banks, 49 states attorney general, and the federal government. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Cliff White, the director of the U.S. Trustee Program, and Ramona Elliott, the deputy director and general counsel to the U.S. Trustee Program. Cliff and Ramona, if I could start by asking you to explain to our listeners what you see as the major features of this agreement. Sure. Thanks. Well, the agreement is uh, a product of uh, a major federal and state civil enforcement effort designed to hold the banks accountable, the mortgage servicers accountable, for mortgage servicer abuse that occurred both inside and outside of bankruptcy. It does that by providing both direct financial penalties and and extensive consumer relief. So I'd suggest that the agreement essentially does three three different things. One, provides relief for homeowners in financial distress, including debtors in Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Most of the $25 billion required to be paid by the banks will be in the form of principal write-downs, refinancing for borrowers who are underwater on their mortgages, and and payments to those who lost their homes to foreclosure and other forms of relief for, for homeowners and also for hard-hit communities. So that's, that's one, one, one part of the agreement. Second, and of perhaps the longest-lasting importance to the bankruptcy system, the agreement sets new mortgage servicing standards to avoid a repeat of the unacceptable practices that we've seen in recent years. So the standards comprise a comprehensive set of requirements that address every category of improper conduct that we in the U.S. trustee program had identified in our investigations. And and finally, uh, uh, the agreement also establishes an independent monitor to oversee compliance with uh, with the agreement. The banks will be subject uh, to monitor review for three and a half years, and that agreement and their compliance will be backed by a federal uh, court order that will provide uh, penalties for for noncompliance. I mentioned that it's the five largest servicing banks, but banks keep changing their names and forms so often. Could you tell our listeners just exactly which banks are covered by this agreement? Sure. The uh, the top five uh, uh, mortgage lenders here are Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and Ally Financial, formerly known as GMAC. And maybe Ramona could, could give us a little bit more indication of... Uh, of all of the constellation of entities within within those those bank names. That'd be helpful. The release also covers certain subsidiaries and affiliates that are involved in the origination and servicing of mortgage loans for single-family residential homeowners. So, for example, Bank of America, you know, includes Bank of America Corp. and Bank of America N.A., 
as well as um, some of the entities that are related to the bank's merger and acquisition of um, Countrywide Home Loan Servicing, LPA, and Countrywide Financial Corp. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase also includes um, it, the bank in the capacity of successor and in interest to Washington Mutual Bank, FSB, Wells Fargo includes um, its capacity as successor and in interest to Wachovia. Citigroup uh, includes Citibank and City Mortgage and Ally Financial, as Cliff mentioned, um, was formerly GMAC, so that also picks up GMAC Mortgage Group and GMAC Mortgage uh, LLC, as well as um, a related entity by the name of Residential Capital LLC. Cliff, in your comments about the major features of the agreement, you, you mentioned Chapter 13. Could you and or Ramona talk with us about how this agreement affects debtors in bankruptcy? Sure. Uh, it's really in two main ways. Um, first, current debtors uh, are eligible for the same relief that's offered to ho- other homeowners uh, in financial uh, distress, and that's particularly relevant to Chapter 13 debtors, but not exclusively to Chapter 13 debtors. But but, but they are eligible for the same relief that's provided for uh, homeowners outside of bankruptcy. And second, current and future uh, debtors will benefit from, from the new uh, standards, as I described. Uh, and those standards uh, include numerous provisions that specifically address the situation of debtors in bankruptcy and some of the mistreatment that those debtors uh, have received uh, from the mortgage servicers uh, uh, as uncovered in our, in our previous investigations. For our listeners who will be involved uh, helping debtors through their bankruptcy, is there something more about the bankruptcy provisions of the mortgage servicing standards they should know? Sure, and I think I think that practitioners will really want to study these standards uh, carefully. And they're not; uh, they'll be uh, available. Summaries are out uh, already, but but the agreement itself will be filed in uh, in federal district court in a, in a week or two. And I think practitioners will want to take a very close look at them from a bankruptcy system perspective. Uh, I'd put the the standards in 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 four four major categories. First, accuracy. Uh, the new standards uh, uh, were established uh, to ensure accuracy in the account information provided to the debtors and also to ensure accuracy in the documents filed in bankruptcy court, specifically the, the proofs of claim and the motions for relief from stay. Uh, also, under this, uh, this, this general category of accuracy, there are provisions in there that require that uh, that uh, the servicers do a pre-filing review of a sample of proofs of claim because that's been the basis for so many of the, of the problems in the system. There are also additional requirements there for uh, post-filing review of affidavits, declarations, sworn statements that are attached to motions for relief from stay. And there are a panoply of, uh, of other steps the banks have to take to ensure that the representations that they make to debtors and to the bankruptcy court are, are true and correct. Uh, so beyond accuracy, another major feature is, uh, is imposition of fees. There are specific requirements in the standards to prohibit default service fees that are unreasonable either because the services were never performed, say lawn mowing service never performed but charged to the, to the debtor, or that where the where the amounts charged were unallowable or, 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 or unreasonable, so there are specific um, proscriptions against uh, against charging of, of certain certain fees. Also, 
We expanded in those standards certain legal protections which, which now exist so that uh, services are required to notice payment changes to debtors in the monthly payment, as well as to notice any of these default service uh, fees that may be imposed after a debtor uh, falls behind. And we expanded those current legal protections beyond what the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure uh, uh, provide by waiving uh, uh, the, the charges if, if, the, uh, if the servicer fails to notice a payment change or the imposition uh, of a fee. So, for example, under the bankruptcy rules that were uh, put into effect last December 1st, uh, which, which has strict new rules for noticing of debtors, uh, the waiver is, is, is more limited than what these standards uh, provide. So we actually impose now a waiver that uh, against the collection of the fees even after the bankruptcy case is over. So we can avoid the situation uh, where potentially uh, the servicer would, would go into state court later and, and try, to, uh, try to collect the money that under the bankruptcy rules uh, the bankruptcy judge wouldn't, wouldn't provide. Third major category, and a very important one, I think, uh, uh, third-party provider uh, provisions, including the bankruptcy and foreclosure uh, lawyers, those who are hired by, by the servicer in order to, uh, to prosecute the, uh, the motion for relief from, from stay uh, and so forth. So servicers will now be more accountable for the actions of their agents, especially the bankruptcy and foreclosure attorneys, but also other default service providers that they, that they, may, they may hire and who take action, uh, which we have seen has, uh, has, uh, has led to uh, inaccurate information being given to the bankruptcy courts about the, the amount of money the debtors really owe or whether the, the fees uh, were, were properly uh, imposed. The mortgage servicer industry has a history of trying to shield itself from liability in bankruptcy court by hiding behind its third-party providers. Uh, so that, uh, but now the servicers are going to have to police those third parties, including their attorneys, and hold those agents accountable for the same standards imposed on the servicers of themselves. So whereas some of the litigation protecting uh, consumer debtors uh, in the past few years has had to do with improprieties committed by third-party providers hired by the banks. The banks are now going to be responsible for compliance by those, by those third parties. Fourth bundle of requirements that I think is of, uh, of significance uh, to those of us in the bankruptcy system is uh, special servicer uh, contacts. Um, so there will be new contacts uh, established for first Chapter 13 debtors. Under, under the agreement, all homeowners who may be eligible for loss mitigation uh, will now be assigned a single point of contact. So that is designed to help avoid the runaround and lost paperwork that's caused so many homeowners who were behind on their payments, who were trying to get a lower interest rate or some other accommodation to modify their loan, but it all became tied up in the, in the bureaucracy of the bank and they couldn't get anybody on the phone who could explain uh, the process or the status of their application, the single point of contact is a major, a major uh, change to try, to try to clear that up. Now, for bankruptcy debtors, they have, they have special needs because uh, the bankruptcy rules are, are uh, also come into play. So that special point of contact for Chapter 13 debtors uh, will be a, 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 uh, an employee of the bank 
specially trained in bankruptcy. Beyond that, we also put in a provision there uh, for Chapter 13 trustees, uh, something we think will be particularly helpful to 13 trustees who make the uh, conduit payments, who make those monthly payments for, uh, for the, the debtors, their monthly mortgage payments, and a large number of districts, as you, as you know, that the 13 trustees make those payments. So for the 13 trustees, uh, there will be a special uh, toll-free number that has to be staffed by the bank by an employee trained in bankruptcy. So that should make it easier for 13 trustees to clear up questions with regard to the account information and the payments uh, uh, along the way. So we think that that's significant. And for the U.S. trustees, for ourselves, as well as for the state attorneys general, the banks uh, uh, will have to assign a management-level official as our contact uh, to resolve any servicing issues that we bring to their attention. But there are many other important standards that are going to benefit homeowners in and out of bankruptcy, uh, limitations on dual tracking, which is why where, where a foreclosure goes forward, even in the past where foreclosure has been going forward, even though there was a, a loan modification application. So some of that can be eliminated. Uh, deadlines for responding to loan mod applications, and a host of other things. But I think from a bankruptcy perspective, those the four things I mentioned uh, maybe have special salience, uh, salience to us. Well, that's quite an impressive list. Is there anything that we should know more about the extent to which this agreement addresses bad conduct by mortgage servicers in bankruptcy cases? Yeah, I mean, as sort of dovetailing off of what Cliff was saying, we were informed as we went into these negotiations by the you know, intensive investigations and litigation that U.S. trustees' offices um, undertook in hundreds of bankruptcy cases throughout the country since 2006 of mortgage servicers' practices in bankruptcy cases. So in developing these standards and looking at it from the perspective of what would be the most beneficial for borrowers in bankruptcy, um, we we ensured that the agreement, in fact, does address the misconduct that, they, that we were seeing throughout the bankruptcy system. And these include, you know, things like, you know, servicers have, in fact, filed inflated or inaccurate proofs of claim and motions for relief from stay. As you know, these are key documents that tell the court how much is owed to the servicer and govern what the Chapter 13 debtor must pay in, in the repayment plan and whether the servicer should be allowed to foreclose even if the debtor is in bankruptcy. So, you know, by, by filing these inaccurate or inflated documents, at best the servicer gets paid too much, and at worst the debtor can't propose a plan that can be approved or the servicer properly gets relief from state of foreclose. The result being in either of those instances that the debtor loses the ability to keep the house and obtain a fresh start in bankruptcy. So the servicing standards, as, as Cliff mentioned, have provisions in there that deal with the accuracy of these documents. Another thing that, that Cliff mentioned um, are provisions that deal with misaccounting. You know, the servicers in our experience, through our investigations, we learned, you know, they have chronically misapplied payments that have been made by Chapter 13 borrowers in bankruptcy. If a debtor fails to make a regular monthly payment after filing for bankruptcy relief, the servicer can file a motion for relief from stay seeking to foreclose. And so what we saw is that without proper accounting, servicers were seeking approval from the bankruptcy court to get relief from the stay to foreclose without proper legal justification. And you know, also 
as a result of the inability to track the pre- and post-petition payments, they were improperly imposing fees and charges, which brings me to the next category of things that, um, that, that Cliff mentioned. And so the servicing standards are meant to address um, improper fees and charges and also this issue of hidden fees in bankruptcy that can lead to improper foreclosure after bankruptcy. As Cliff mentioned, you know, improper fees um, you know, we've seen them for servicers that weren't provided, that weren't in, uh, warranted, or that were amounts that weren't allowed by the loan documents or were unreasonable. We've also seen instances of double dipping on escrow payments where the servicer will include um, an escrow deficiency in the proof of claim amount, which governs the arrearage that's paid under the plan and can lead to issues of um, feasibility under the plan as well as, by the same token, doing notice of payment changes post-petition to collect that same amount um, over, the, you know, over a shorter period of time post-bankruptcy. And we've also seen things like um, BPOs, uh, broker price opinions, and drive-bys for you know, houses that the debtor doesn't even own. Um, one of the things that we fought hard about was um, to address this issue of the hidden fees which are, you know, assessed during the bankruptcy case and that aren't disclosed until after discharge. Sometimes these are imposed in violation of orders that, um, that the courts have entered deeming the mortgage current. So that practice should stop. Um, and the last thing I'll touch upon is just that, you know, the, the standards will also address the issue where the banks are seeking to um, seeking relief from state of foreclose while a debtor's loan mod application is pending. Essentially, in those instances, the servicers were depriving the debtors um, as debtors in bankruptcy of their eligibility for loan modification. That's very helpful. How did this all come about? Well, we had been investigating uh, servicing abuse uh, on a case-by-case basis for, uh, for about the past five years. But in the wake of the robo-signing scandal, the, the scandal that hit the front pages of the newspapers in about the fall of 2010 having to do with with affidavits uh, in foreclosure proceedings uh, having been uh, signed by, by individuals for the uh, banks who didn't have personal knowledge and without the proper uh, notarization. In the wake of that, that scandal, the Justice Department uh, convened all of the federal agencies that had enforcement and regulatory responsibilities uh, in the housing area, including the U.S. trustee, other components of justice, housing and urban development, uh, the controller of the currency, and, and, and others, to, to discuss the scope of the problem and the possibility of making concerted efforts to, to address the problem. So the effort was led within the Justice Department by the Associate Attorney General, uh, uh, Tom Pirelli, and he first began by, by convening these meetings on the federal side and then began coordinating with the various state uh, attorneys general. Now, because of our recent history in investigating bad conduct uh, by, by the mortgage servicer industry, we, we were able to assist uh, uh, right from the start in providing uh, information to other regulatory and enforcement agencies as to the magnitude of the problem and, uh, and specific types of problems uh, that, that, that needed to be, to be investigated. Well, Cliff, it's obvious that uh from, from the provisions that you've described, that uh, your office must have been actively involved in reaching the agreement. Can you speak more specifically 
about the role of the U.S. trustee program in reaching this agreement? Sure, sure. I'd be, ha- be happy to. I guess maybe the best way I can describe it is, is really just to, to paraphrase uh, the Attorney General, who at the, uh, the news conference uh, described us as uh, one of the first federal agencies to investigate uh, mortgage servicer abuse of, of, of homeowners who are in financial uh, distress. And the Associate Attorney General at, at the same uh, news conference credited uh, us together with the Federal Trade Commission as really, as really having helped lead the way in the investigation. The Attorney General also, in, 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 in noting that there had been a very significant federal investigative effort uh, leading up to this agreement, uh, cited us uh, uh, first by noting that over one eight-month period at the, at the outset of this concerted effort, we reviewed 37,000 mortgage claims and motions. And ultimately, uh, through a lot of litigation that maybe Ramona can, can describe and a lot of opposition from the banks, we ended up conducting discovery in more than 175 cases. So by any measure, we conducted, I think, a very substantial investigation. And I will say other federal agencies uh, did, did, did as well. The Inspector General of HUD in particular, I think, did a, did a great job in, in looking at this. But we had a certain advantage throughout this process when we, when we came to the table uh, and, and entered into the discussions first with the federal agencies and then with the state AGs because um, bankruptcy provided an early warning sign uh, uh, as to the industry-wide uh, problems, which is why we began investigating and, and taking on cases uh, five years ago, it became apparent to us that the problem wasn't being fixed uh, by by the bank. The problems were, were, were recurred, and they were they were nationwide, and they were they were pretty much uh, industry-wide. So that allowed us to to give that technical assistance to banking regulators as well as to uh, enforcement agencies. And then, as I say, when, when we came together collectively to try to decide how we could try to solve this problem, uh, we, uh, we, we engaged in, in a stepped-up review, a very, very intensive uh, review, uh, and, uh, and sought discovery so that we no longer accepted the fact that a bank, when we uncovered a problem or debtors' counsel unco- uncovered a problem, it fixed it, that wasn't good enough. We sought discovery uh, to get to the root of the problem, to be able to evaluate the systemic nature uh, of of the problem, and uh, that I think was key to being able to uh, uh, to really provide necessary information for the whole federal uh, constellation of agencies to to understand uh, what what we were what we were dealing with. Could you speak more specifically about these? pre-agreement enforcement efforts? Sure, I'll turn to Ramona for that. Sure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this this project that we started um, was really premised upon the investigations and litigation that, that we've been undertaking since 2006. Um, as Cliff mentioned, in, t- in 2010, we worked with the FTC to reach an, a settlement with Countrywide, um, and that was concerning their servicing practices in bankruptcy. That resulted in a settlement payment of $108 million, which included a large portion that was paid to Chapter 13 debtors. When we launched the special project in the fall of last year, uh, what we decided to do was to take selected jurisdictions and across the country and to review 100% of the proofs of claim and contested motions for relief from stay 
that were being filed by these five servicers. And as, as Cliff mentioned, you know, during the first eight months of that um, endeavor, we reviewed 37,000 claims and, and motions. What we were looking for were um, facial discrepancies, numbers that didn't make sense, or documents that uh, proofs of claim and, and motions that were not sufficiently documented or itemized. And we found thousands of those. And as Cliff mentioned, as we um, started to look into this, generally the response that we would meet in a lot of these cases is that, is that the servicers would begin to fix the problem. They would amend the proof of claim. They would include the attachments to the motions for relief from stay. And so we really endeavored to continue um, to look at the underlying cause of the problem and to try to identify whether, in fact, this was a systemic issue. And so that's why we undertook the discovery through, primarily through motions for 2004 examinations, but also in the context of um, depositions and discovery requests in connection with objections to proofs of claim. And at the time that we had um, reached the settlement, we'd begun to obtain discovery, particularly with respect to um, some of the servicers' uh, practices and policies and procedures. And we have um, today, you know, have conducted discovery in 175 cases, including reviewing um, thousands of, of documents, as well as deposing um, a number of witnesses. Could you describe the, the litigation with the mortgage servicers that was settled by this agreement? Um, it, it was an interesting, it's interesting from the perspective that, you know, we as a program have never faced this level of resistance in a consumer case. The number of large law firms that were engaged to, by the servicers to send off these disputes, which were in individual cases in the context of, um, you know, as I mentioned, these facial deficiencies on these documents where they were seeking relief was really something that we've only encountered in the context of large Chapter 11 cases when, for example, we seek to file a motion to oust management in favor of the appointment of an, of an independent trustee or, or an examiner um, to, to conduct an investigation of the corporate debtor's conduct. So it, it was, it, it required, it was very resource intensive. We ended up in about 300 cases over the course of, of a year facing various motions um, that were filed and objections to our discovery by the servicers and motions to quash that discovery. Um, these were often followed by motions for reconsideration at the bankruptcy court, as well as more than 30 appeals, including about a dozen that actually reached the circuit court. We eventually filed eight motions for sanctions or to compel compliance because even after the servicers had exhausted the judicial process, um, we still couldn't obtain the needed testimony or documents. One of the things that, that we have, um, that the servicers have consistently challenged is our authority to investigate creditor abuse of the system and the authority of the bankruptcy courts to impose systemic relief. Effectively, you know, the servicer's argument in a lot of these cases was that, you know, the U.S. trustee program had the ability to combat abuses of the bankruptcy system by debtors, but not to protect debtor homeowners from the um, abuses of the system as we alleged that the servicers were conducted. Interestingly, um, as a result of this effort and going back, not only in this project that started in the fall, but 
going back to some of our earlier litigation, as a result, we now have two circuit courts that have taken different approaches to the bankruptcy court's authority to address these issues. The Third Circuit found that the bankruptcy court can, in fact, oppose a remedy to take into account the impact of the servicer's future conduct. And the Fifth Circuit, on the other hand, struck down injunctive relief in one of these cases because the debtor had settled her individual dispute with the servicer. And so um, in light of the fact that we are, um, there, there's a legal issue as to um, the, the authority of the bankruptcy courts, um, Senator Leahy and, and others have introduced legislation to clarify our authority and our ability to bring these, uh, to bring these types of actions. Looking ahead, how will this mortgage settlement agreement be implemented and what will be done to ensure compliance? I think basically from a bankruptcy perspective, two, two, two main ways. I mean, one, the U.S. trustee is going to have to continue to police mortgage servicing uh, conduct uh, in the bankruptcy system, uh, both by the five banks that are party to this agreement and by the other servicers who, who, did, not, who did not join. And by the way, I hope that perhaps other servicers may, may join this, uh, this agreement and adopt these standards uh, uh, over time. Now, beyond what we can do to continue to police within the bankruptcy system, also, there's a, now an independent monitor to oversee compliance with the agreement. And uh, that independent monitor is uh, uh, Joseph Smith, who's the banking commissioner, currently the banking commissioner in, in North Carolina. Uh, he will hire other professionals to assist him in reviewing servicer compliance over a three and one half year period. So that's quite significant. There'll be a robust uh, regimen for overseeing compliance and, and an independent monitor superintending that. The monitor will be filing public reports as to, as to his findings. And if the banks fail to demonstrate compliance under metrics uh, established uh, to measure uh, the, uh, their, um, their compliance, and under the, monitor, the monitor's work plan, describing ways in which he's going to otherwise oversee uh, the activities, then the bank is going to be subject, if they, if they fail to demonstrate compliance, they're going to be subject to additional penalties uh, that could go up to $5 million per violation. And importantly, in addition to that, other very significant penalties if the banks fail to provide the consumer relief, that is the loan modification, uh, in an expedited uh, manner. They have to... They have to uh, pay either in cash or through loan modifications in other ways that $25 billion. And if they fail to do that, meaning benchmarks along the way, then the amount they ultimately are going to have to pay is going to be greater than that $25 uh, billion. Right. And, and I'll add that, importantly, you know, this settlement is backed by a court order. The department, as well as the state attorneys general, can bring enforcement actions for violation of the agreement. In addition, the program will take appropriate actions to ensure that servicers comply with their obligation to remediate improper actions against individual borrowers and in individual cases. And how does this agreement relate to recent agreement between the banks and banking regulators? They're really complementary. Uh, and so, so many homeowners uh, may be able to receive benefits both under this agreement and also from the bank regulators agreement, which, is, which provides uh, specifically for restitution uh, in individual uh, cases. Right, and, and those orders impose separate requirements for the servicers to review past foreclosure cases 
those are cases that were pending between January 1st of 2009 through December 31st of 2010, and to compensate individual homeowners who were actually harmed. This agreement that um, we have reached will not affect the services obligations under those orders. But does this agreement settle all causes of action that the government might have against mortgage servicers and banks? No, no, it, it, it does not. Uh, first of all, the United States may pursue criminal enforcement uh, actions. That's not affected at all by this agreement. Uh, also, the United States provided uh, only a narrow release on certain loan origination claims, and actually in the weeks since the agreement, uh, there have been uh, separate actions already uh, announced taken by U.S. attorneys and, uh, and resolution of, of those. Also importantly, uh, the United States may pursue securities claims uh, related to misrepresentation of the quality of loans that were packaged into mortgage-backed securities. In fact, this is the focus of the new Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities Working Group that was formed uh, two weeks ago within the President's Financial Fraud Enforcement Task Force. So, there, so the Justice Department uh, uh, will, will still be pursuing uh, various uh, other, or could continue to pursue various other uh, causes of action. Well, that addresses the government. How about debtors? Can debtors still sue the mortgage servicers? Yes, they can. Debtors aren't parties to the agreement, so they're not restricted in their actions. Um, neither are Chapter 13 trustees. Well, what should Chapter 13 debtors do if they want to receive the benefits under this agreement? Because of the complexity of the mortgage market and this agreement, borrowers will not know immediately if they're eligible for relief. About uh, $1.5 billion of the settlement funds are allocated to compensate homeowners who were foreclosed on or after January 1st of 2008. These borrowers, including debtors, will be notified by a settlement administrator to be appointed by the state of their right to file a claim against that settlement fund. Borrowers who were not properly offered loss mitigation or who otherwise improperly foreclosed upon will be eligible to receive payments that are estimated to be approximately $2,000, depending on the level of the response. And in receiving those payments, borrowers, including debtors, won't be required to release any claims that they have against the servicers. The bulk of the settlement, as Cliff described, is for loan modifications and refinancing options. And with respect to that, Chapter 13 debtors must contact their mortgage servicer to obtain additional information. Obviously, we continue to work through the documents, and we expect that more information will be made available as these settlement programs are finalized and implemented. Well, I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot more about the mortgage servicing agreement than mortgage settlement agreement than they knew before. But by way of a, a last question, uh, could I ask you to sort of reflect on the lessons that you've learned, not only from your very active participation in the agreement, but from your very lengthy and intensive enforcement efforts against mortgage services before the agreement? Sure. I mean, I think that there were lessons in it for the U.S. trustee program that go beyond just uh, the issue of mortgage servicers, but in terms of uh, where we can play the most effective role within the bankruptcy uh, system. So uh, one lesson we take from this is that as a program, we can be most effective, have the greatest impact when we coordinate our enforcement efforts with all of our, our offices. We, we have one advantage. We're, we're, we're 
in every state except North Carolina and Alabama, and uh, we have 95 field offices. And so that can, that can give us certain advantages uh, when we seek to investigate and, and, and to remedy problems, when we can bring to bear uh, the resources uh, uh, in, in those field offices. That allows us in many ways to have a greater impact than any other single player can in the bankruptcy system. And a second lesson that, that we've learned is uh, we, uh, as, as, and this is something known by, by enforcement agencies and should be known by enforcement agencies, you need to follow the evidence where, wherever, it, wherever it leads because uh, even as I sit here now, uh, it is still somewhat shocking to me that the banks have had such inadequate methods for accounting for loans in default. So in the bankruptcy system, we shouldn't assume that the large institutional players can be relied upon to provide accurate information to the courts without requiring some verification. And, and third, and, and, and maybe the one that, that, that is the most salient to us as an agency and in, in, in going forward, we need to remember that we always have to be uh, agile and able to adjust so we will address the emerging needs in the bankruptcy uh, system. I mean, I would suggest really as a bureaucracy, the U.S. trustee program has really distinguished itself in, in recent years. Uh, first, in retooling our operations in order to successfully implement the 2005 reform law, which, which had a significant impact on us, significant new responsibilities, and, and I think that uh, we showed great, great agility and in uh, retooling our operations to carry out those new congressional responsibilities. And then later, in turning uh, so much attention as we did to the task of policing uh, mortgage industry misconduct uh, in the system. And, and I, I really do want to take the opportunity to say how, how proud I am of, of the dedicated people uh, in the U.S. trustee program at all levels uh, in the organization uh, for working as a team, and for showing really amazing dedication and commitment to our, to our mission of protecting the integrity uh, and efficiency of the system. And this mortgage servicer project uh, certainly, certainly showed, I think, uh, their efforts uh, uh, at its best. So uh, my colleagues, I will say, I believe, uh, exemplify the best in public service, and I don't think you're going to find a finer team of people in any government agency or really in any, uh, in any uh, private company. And I think the contributions we made to this agreement uh, helped help demonstrate that point. Well, thank you again for, for giving us so much of your time. This is, has been very helpful, and, and, and we're grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you.